are emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my good friend and co-host, Ron Baker, and today's show, folks, we are honored to have back with us for a second time, Dr. Paul Thomas. Welcome back so- to the show, Dr. Paul. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on again. It's, uh, it's great to be here, uh, despite all the circumstances. Yes, absolutely. And actually, this first question I just wanted to ask you is, first of all, how are, how are you, specifically you? I'm doing all right. I am staying at home currently so that, you know, I, do, I don't know if I'm an asymptomatic carrier and I usually take care of patients face-to-face in my office, but we're doing virtually everything uh, virtually. And so, I'm really just focusing on staying healthy and by proxy keeping all my patients healthy. Sure. I like that. Virtually everything virtually. <laughs> it's a double yeah. virtual. Un- unintended. Um, it's tremendous. Yeah. tremendous. <laughs> and what about the people in your local community? Obviously, you know, your patients, patient, doctor, patient privilege, but just the, the local community around you. How, how's, how's it going there? Well, oh, geez. You know, Detroit has been really hard hit and so has Wayne County. You know, I live in Wayne County and we have been bearing the brunt of the coronavirus because the rates in Michigan are very high. I think we've had 12,500 cases so far and just shy of 500 deaths in uh, Michigan so far. And the majority of those have been in Detroit and Wayne County um, and Southeast Michigan. Wow. And, and last I checked, and this I think is, is data from a couple of days ago, which and a couple of days ago seems to be a century at, at this point, uh, showed about 40% of the, the hospital beds in Michigan are filled with COVID patients. I would imagine it's probably higher specifically by you, but is that jive with the numbers you're hearing as well? Um, I haven't heard percentage of beds per hospital, but that does sound about right. You know, I got off the phone. I, one of our patients went to the hospital uh, yesterday and I talked to the doctor caring for her, and he told me that they only have two ventilators available as of yesterday. So mm. it's, we're getting to this really dire territory where um, we're running out of manpower, beds, and ventilators for the patients who need it, and it's going to cost us lives. So, so let me, uh, I want to jump, jump to that since you, you bring up the whole ventilator thing. And is, it, first of all, is it, there a difference between intubation, I've been hearing that term, and you, being on a ventilator? Are those the same thing? Yeah, that's virtually the same thing. If you need to be intubated, you're on a ventilator to allow a machine to breathe for you. Sometimes you don't need to be uh, intubated to be on a ventilator. They can force air um, into your nose and mouth uh, with a high pressure pump. However, that shouldn't be done with COVID-19 because that high pressure air can spread the virus throughout the 
that environment throughout that room and throughout that ward. So they're trying to avoid using those sort of machines. So in this instance, the ventilator is the same as intubation. Okay. And, and that's different, of course, from just being on oxygen and having like, you know, if you've, if you've had any kind of, you know, life surgery at your dentist or something where they put the, 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 the oxygen by your nose, that's, that's a totally different thing. Correct. Yeah. Usually let's just say you go to the hospital and you're feeling short of breath. Um, perhaps the first thing they'll do is put a nasal cannula oxygen on you, which everybody's seen this in the TV shows. It's just like the little piece of plastic that runs right under your nose. And it's got the two little tabs to go into your nostrils and it puts out a certain amount of oxygen. Um, so it can help you breathe, um, get more oxygen into your lungs. Um, and then if your symptoms were to progress, um, that's when they would start to consider, you know, uh, intubation and ventilation. And one of the things that, you know, there's so much information and you don't know what, what to trust. So I'm so glad that we have, have you on. There are potentially some long-term risks even of being in, um, intubated, right? And even after you come off it, your lung, challenges with your lung capacity coming back, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of issues with um, being on a ventilator. Uh, one of those is that, you know, they're showing now that 80% of people will be unable to come off of the ventilator uh, who are affected by COVID-19. That was one of the staggering stats that I had to come to, term with, to terms with because, um, you know, sending the patient to the hospital, I had a long conversation with the hospital physician and he was telling me that, you know, certain people who have a certain criteria won't even be, be intubated because they have a very low chance of coming off the ventilator. He had said 16% a chance of coming off the ventilator. So, but, you know, nationally and internationally, it's might be 16% to 20%. Sure. Sure. Well, I want to uh, get, get back to, to you specifically a little bit here. I just went down that path since you brought that up, but what has been the effect, if any, on your business model? You mentioned that you're doing more virtual visits, and that's great. Uh, but has there been uh, any significant challenges because of your business model and practice? This is what we talked to you about last time when we were having a grand old time talking about the, the, the notion of, of direct primary care. But has there been an effect on it? Yeah, I, you know, because um, we've been so vocal about the coronavirus crisis, I've been posting a lot on my blog and talking to people a lot on my personal Facebook page, just trying to get out as much good information as possible. Uh, I've had have seen an increase in the number of patients who've joined our practice. Uh, we had about 50 new people sign up for our practice last month. Usually we get only about, you know, 20 to 30 new patients each month. So, you know, people have gravitated towards this model and we continue to be useful and effective for our patients. Uh, it just is a big change because I'm used to seeing patients in person. That's something that makes me really happy in terms of practicing medicine. I enjoy that person-to-person relationship and interaction. And now we're doing um, all of our work virtually to save lives and prevent the spread of the virus. And and how is that? Is it, are are uh, are they? Are you waiving any and any uh, regulations to be able to do that? I know there have been a lot of challenges with that, but maybe that was just because through insurance companies they 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 prefer not to have you do any kind of uh, online visits, and it's something that you were able to do anyway. 
That's right. We've always been able to do virtual visits. You know, some things you'd much rather see people in person. And in terms of creating a good relationship with somebody, it's nice to see them face to face. However, um, because we don't bill or use insurance, because we don't bill or use Medicare or Medicaid, we have no restrictions on how we deliver care. We just have to take really good care of our patients. And as long as our patients are satisfied with that care that we deliver, they continue to pay us the monthly membership for our services. Wow. So, and this is one of the things Ron and I have been been talking about, you know, personally, when we have our kind of side conversations during the week is, do you think that, that, COVID-19 COVID might lead to a significant increase in direct primary care because of the fact that you can get around the, the, the restrictions that are, that are put on physicians by insurance companies? It, it might. You know, this is so multifactorial. I think sure. part of the reason why direct primary care succeeds is because there's demand on two sides. Physicians are demanding to get out of a dysfunctional system and patients are demanding on getting out of a dysfunctional system. And so when you have patients and doctors meeting in the middle and finding each other, you have a ripe marketplace for direct primary care. And I think this coronavirus epidemic and pandemic will open the eyes of a lot of doctors to say that, wow, I can do a lot of care virtually and I can deliver excellent care via this method. Um, how can I do this all the time, not in an emergency situation or pandemic type of situation. And I think the word is spreading about uh, direct primary care among successful doctors throughout their states and local communities. So more doctors are knowing about direct care. The only caveat to that is that, you know, it, it is a recession going on right now. We may be entering a lengthy recession. So who knows how many doctors are going to be willing to leave an employed gig and start a direct primary care service. And that's kind of like the million dollar question. Yeah. Like you said, lots of different factors could, could affect that. But I'm, I'm mostly curious about just the, the, maybe some of those regulations will also change because of this. And, and, you know, that's what we're seeing at work. And I, I, I joke, I've seen that with my 14 year old son who, you know, gets his work from school assigned on Monday morning and is finished usually by Tuesday evening or early or latest Wednesday morning and, and complained to me, see, Dad, I told you school was a total waste of time <laughs> <laughs> and, and that I could do it a lot faster. So, you know, me, me trying to convince him to go back to school is going to be a challenge. I wonder if convincing some of these doctors to not see patients virtually uh, is going to be more of a challenge, even though there were previously res restrictions on it. Yeah. I mean, it, I'm hoping that the system changes, but until it does, I'm going to continue doing direct primary care. There's no way I'm going back to that old system of doing things <laughs> because this way is just too efficient. It's too efficient to be able to text your patient and give them the right care when they need it rather than waiting for uh, the next in-person appointment. Sure. And I have about one more minute with you left in, in this segment, Dr. Paul. And I, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the, the numbers that we're all seeing. I'm, I'm sure there's probably a site, whether it's John Hopkins or the one that I'm looking at, which is Worldometers. You know, the, the, the numbers are pretty, pretty scary. But I also, I, I have to say that the numbers are also s staggeringly incomplete. 
Um, I, I posted on my personal Facebook that you know I don't think we can really believe that the number of cases in China was limited to eighty-one thousand. No, I, I don't believe that for a second. I think the Chinese government uh, discounted a lot of people, and um, I think they covered up the number of infections to downplay their role in all of this in this global pandemic that they're ultimately responsible for. Um, you know, they were responsible for starting it and our government uh, response was inadequate to uh, face up to this. Um, and, and I think they really, uh, you know, suppressed the number of people who reported this and even the doctors who came out and spoke about it, they were um, reprimanded and sometimes relieved of their posts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a, a, it's a tragic situation that, that continues to, to, <laughs> Uh, yield more horrible consequences as we move on. But we are up against our first break. We want to remind those of you listening that you can contact Ron and me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes and listen to all of our previous shows, including our previous show with Dr. Paul Thomas. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're honored to have our second interview with Dr. Paul Thomas, the founder of Plum Health Direct Primary Care in Michigan. And doctor, you were talking about the business model, the subscription, and I'm kind of curious if you think in times like this, I know you've put out a lot of information on your blog, great informative videos and posts 
about how to deal with this and preventative measures and procedures. And I'm just wondering, do you think this has deepened your relationship with your patients, even though you are kind of sheltered in place and have been since Tuesday, I guess? Yeah, I I definitely think it has. I think just uh, across the board, I think our relationships with other people have been deepened. Um, And I'll give you a few examples. Just I find myself texting my patients more and just asking, how are you doing? And what's going on in your personal life? And likewise, a lot of my patients have been reaching out to me, asking about my own personal well-being, which has happened sometimes, but I've definitely seen more people reaching out and asking about that during this time. And then the other example I'll give is just walking in our neighborhood. Sometimes, you know, it's the only thing we can really do is stay at home, uh, read, watch TV or Netflix or whatever, and then go for walks in our neighborhood. And I, you know, before it would, it would take a lot to, you know, look up and smile at other people and that those interactions didn't really happen. And now it just feels so much more genuine. Like people really want to wave and smile and talk for a minute, even at like a six or 10 foot distance. Right. Right. Yeah. Now, one of the things I love about the whole membership subscription based model is it does put that relationship front and center. And, and Ed and I have been talking a lot this past couple of weeks about with, you know, the shelter in place and a lot of businesses hurting like restaurants, wouldn't it be better rather than buying a bunch of gift certificates from your local favorite Thai food place or pizza place to subscribe to them? Do you think the subscription model helps you weather a storm like this crisis better than say a normal GP practice that's more transactional? Absolutely. I think, you know, our business will succeed and thrive through this experience because of our subscription model. I just don't know how you would survive as a general practice that's doing fee for service because um, during a pandemic like this, because all of your revenue is based on volume and servicing people face-to-face in your office. And that's the only way you can generate revenue. And so if you have a shelter in place order um, where you need to shut down your office to prevent the spread of a coronavirus, I, I just don't think, I just don't see how you could be viable through something like this. Right. Dr. Paul, can you kind of explain the protocol for tests? I don't know if you've had to do this with any of your patients, but if I'm one of your subscribers and I come to you and I think I, I've got symptoms that kind of make me suspect I have this, what is the protocol don't they test for the flu first, maybe some other things, and only as a last resort will they test you for the coronavirus? We had been doing that before where, you know, somebody came to the office and they didn't meet the criteria for testing. We do a flu test. And if it was negative, we go on and do the coronavirus test. We did have somebody test positive that way in our office, unfortunately. Now that um, we've progressed a little bit through this a pandemic and through our response to this, our Detroit mayor, Mayor Duggan has been a thought leader on this and he's really gathered a lot of resources to make testing more available to everyone in the Southeast Michigan area. And they're running 400 tests a day at um, the state fairgrounds in Detroit at Woodward and eight mile. And so all I have to do is write a prescription for my patients, text it over to them. And I give them a phone call or sorry, a phone number that they call to set up an appointment for themselves. 
and they have to bring their ID and the photo of the, you know, their phone with my prescription texted to them. They show that to the um, people at the testing site and they run the test. I actually just got two results in the last hour for patients that I've been sending that direction. And I'm literally testing anybody who wants to have it done. I'm sending them over because they have the capacity and um, everybody should be tested. Right, right. That's one of the issues with the numbers, isn't it? I mean, we don't really have a clear idea of the denominator. We know the people that have tested positive, but we don't know how many people are walking around with asymptomatic, you know, symptoms, right? Right. Yeah. There could be a lot of asymptomatic carriers or people who have mild symptoms who think it's uh, the flu or an upper respiratory virus or allergies. Uh, It's only the more serious cases that are getting tested. But I think in Detroit, that's changing. I think more and more people are getting tested because the availability of this test site is, is opening things up to greater number of people in the community. Right. So settle a, a big dispute you see all over the place. Should we be wearing masks when we go out? Yes. Yes. Okay. 100% yes. This is an airborne or respiratory droplet spreading disease. Um, it's a virus that's spread by coughing and uh, living in respiratory droplets. So if you can protect yourself with a barrier over your nose and mouth that prevents that virus from entering your nose and mouth, I think that's there's nothing but benefit from that. And another thing that wearing a mask might do is it might train you to not touch your nose and mouth um, after you touch a surface. Oh, like if you're wearing a mask, you might touch something or bag some groceries, then you go to itch your nose or something. And then oh, I'm wearing this mask. I shouldn't be touching my nose at all. Okay. So then it kind of cuts down on those sorts of transmissions as well. Does it have to be an N95 mask? No, it doesn't. And they're saying that, you know, any barrier is going to be helpful. Um, They actually don't, you know, the government and the large hospital systems don't want people buying up all the N95 masks and even all the surgical masks because they're still supply shortages at hospitals and other uh, sites for first responders, like for EMTs, et cetera. So if you have a cloth mask that you can use or um, that you can sew yourself, that'd be great. Just probably wash it. Uh, Only wear it for a couple hours, then wash it. So maybe have two of those cloth masks and kind of cycle through those each day. Right. And you probably remember this, Dr. Paul, but in 2009 to 10, we were inundated with the swine flu. There were quite a few millions of cases in the USA. 12,469 people died between April 12th and April 10th, 2009 to 2010. And 87% of them were under the age of 65 from what I've seen. What makes this deadlier than the swine flu? Well, I think that um, just the, there's a number called the R0 or the R0, and that's mm-hmm. how many people this virus spreads to. And this virus is spreading to 2.5 to 2.9 people for every one person that it infects. So you're, that's why you're seeing this exponential growth of cases. And then the second number that's really important is the uh, case fatality rate uh, or mortality rate for this which has been globally around, you know, three to 4%. Um, right now in our Detroit community, 
it's around, I think it's 3.5%, 3.8% for uh, Michigan. Right. Of so, course, that's based on the denominator that we know, right? Not the unknown. No, that's, that's actually the case fatality rate. So out of all the people who are infected, I think at la- yesterday I calculated this out. It was like there are 12,000 um, or so infect- infections, and then there were 420 or so deaths. So that had worked out to a case fatality rate of somewhere in the range of 3.5%. Right. Can this come back in different strains once you get it and recovered? Can it come back at you at some future date with a different strain? Yeah, and that's, uh, I, I don't know because I'm not like an immunologist, virologist, but there's from some reports that I've read, um, it could potentially come back as a cyclical annual virus. Um, and we're hoping that once you get this virus, you'll be immune to it or similar strains of it for one to three years. So it's really hard to say um, if it's going to come back in the same form or if it's going to be back in a different form. And on the cases that you've seen, whether on websites or whatever, have you ever, ever seen like a demographic or age breakdown? Like, do we know the people that this is really affecting maybe certain age cutoffs or they have comorbidity issues or whatever. Yeah. So I, the state of Michigan has put out some excellent data. Um, they have, I think it's michigan.gov slash coronavirus. And I just looked at all this data uh, yesterday. Our youngest death was age 20. Our oldest was age 107. The average age was 71 years. And unfortunately, uh, 40% of the deceased from coronavirus in Michigan are African-American. And that's a a population that's been disproportionately affected by this because um, African-American people only make up 13.8% of the state population. So we're really seeing African-American people uh, disproportionately affected by this virus. It has an even split among men and women. So 49% of the cases in Michigan are men, 51% are women, um, but 62% of the fatalities have been men, which is uh, really interesting and unique. And I really don't know why that is. I haven't seen anybody comment on why so many Michigan men have died from this versus women. Right. And for some of those older patients who die with it, it, there's a difference between dying from and dying with Corona, how, how do they make that distinction when they gather these statistics? Or if, if, if you've got it, you've got, you test positive, that's it. You've got it. And they'll, they'll just log that as a death from Corona, even though there may be other things. I, I honestly don't know because I'm not in the hospital seeing patients in the hospital and I'm not noting how people die on their death certificates. This is something that I did in residency when people would pass away in the hospital we would document the cause, but I, I don't know what their criteria is like inside the hospital. I would assume that a death from coronavirus would be the um, ARDS, uh, the acute respiratory distress syndrome, where somebody can no longer get oxygen to their bloodstream because their lungs are so badly damaged by the virus that I think would qualify for you dying from 
coronavirus, but I don't know if people are sticking to that uh, definition. Right, right. Yeah, that's one of the big questions I have. Well, Dr. Paul, unfortunately, we're up against our next break. I knew this would just be flying by, but folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to send me or Ed an email, you can do so at asktsoe at verisage.com. Check out the soulofenterprise.com. We'll post full show notes and links to Dr. Paul's blog, where there's some great information, some videos, um, lots of resources you can get from there. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. We are honored to have Dr. Paul Thomas back on the show for a second time uh, to talk th- this time about COVID-19 and the ramifications. And he has been wonderful. And we, we are really appreciative of him taking the time out from his seeing his patients to, to speak with us today. And Dr. Paul, I wanted to ask you, we talked a little bit uh, with Ron about the tests and wanted to see what are what are your thoughts on the at home test? Do you think we're going to get to a point where we're all going to be able to maybe test ourselves at home and 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 maybe get some better numbers because of it? Yeah, I hope so. I think people can are more than ready to do at home testing. I think people are smart enough, and then we also have tools like YouTube or you know technology where we could send somebody a video message to show them exactly how to do it. Um, We've seen people be successful with at-home uh, um, urinary tract infection tests and at-home like uh, DNA testing like with 23andMe and other things like that. So I think people will be able to do an at-home either finger prick or something like that to get a small collection and see if they've developed antibodies to this. And, it, and that's what it would be. It would be a test to see if you've had the virus 
not a test for the virus itself. So has your body produced IgM or IgG, the um, antibodies that lets us know that you're immune to this condition? Yes, I was very happy that my my personal physician let me do the the at home test for for instead of the colonoscopy when I turned fifty two. So I was pretty happy about that. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> Cologuard, you you mail the box. It has directions yeah. on how to get a stool sample, which is yep. a pretty personal thing. And then people figured out how to do that because the alternative is to go to the hospital and have the scope done. That's right. Thanks. No, I'll, uh, I'll figure out a way to make that happen. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, with regard to the test though, and uh, I've seen different reports of this, just curious as to your opinion. And if, if you want to shy away from this question, I totally understand about the, the FDA and CDC kind of me- messing up the, the process for when this, for this first hit, what, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Um, <laughs> there's a lot of things that we could talk about, about, um, uh, lack of a federal response um, mm. to the coronavirus. But let's just say that our government has failed to be prepared for this pandemic um, and it's costing American lives. It's really sad to see, but that's a reality. Had we developed um, an adequate response to this, we wouldn't have this problem. And there are so many different places that we could have intervened. Like we could have sent researchers, scientists, on the ground in China when there were first reports of this outbreak and help their scientists to collect data and start developing vaccines and start helping their population to limit the spread. Uh, Beyond that, we could have started ramping up our own testing capabilities and our own development of ventilators and building hospitals and creating spaces for people who are sick to go for treatment once our hospital systems are overwhelmed. And Like, for example, in China, they built a separate hospital to house all of the Chinese doctors who were treating patients so that those doctors wouldn't go home to their own families and spread the virus that way. So that's something China did well. And so they put all those uh, Chinese doctors up in hotels every night. So they, they, sorry, let me back up here. They, China built a hospital to house all the sick patients with coronavirus. So they kept the Mm -hmm. coronavirus patients separate from the other hospitals where people could be treated as typical. And then the doctors would come into the coronavirus hospital, treat patients, and then they would be housed at hotels um, specifically for doctors treating patients so that the doctors wouldn't bring the, the coronavirus back to their families. So we're really not doing things like that here in the United States. For example, here in Detroit, we're converting an event space that usually houses the International Auto Show into a hospital, but that was so delayed that it's not going to be ready until April 10th. Um, so, you know, it's we really lacked a functional federal government that had a coordinated response to this. And it's leaving all these independent states fighting over different resources like ventilators we are literally fighting against other states to get enough ventilators for our hospitals in Michigan. Yeah. And I, I, I try to keep telling people that I think that it, this, this is less political than it is governmental. And, and by that, I mean, I don't necessarily think that the FDA CDC situation with messing up the test would have been significantly different had there been another occupant of the white house. Now there may have been differences in the mobile response, like you're saying, 
But just with regard to that, it's just the nature of bureaucracy, I think, that, that, that may have been the, the downfall. And those, those people really wouldn't change over one administration to the other. Yeah, I, I don't know because, you know, these things come around every 100 years, it seems. Right. And right. so it's really hard <laughs> to say what the investment would have been like, what the federal response would have been like one administration to the next. But I know that we have really botched this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. And on, on your website, you, I think you did a fantastic top job debunking the, the vitamin C myth that's been out there. I haven't seen you write anything, and this is another one that, one that's that's I, I think in the in still in the rumor category about the I'm not gonna probably not gonna say this right, but chloroquine. Yeah, hydroxychloroquine mm-hmm. and chloroquine. Okay. Yeah, chloroquine. Um, okay. Uh, well, for these, they've started to use them for experimental purposes in the hospital. Um, however, there's no proven efficacy. We don't know that they work to decrease the severity of this virus. And so if you are in the general population, do not stockpile or take chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine because you're going to take it away from somebody who has rheumatoid arthritis or lupus who takes it on a regular basis uh, as a life-saving medication for their autoimmune disease. So there are patients out there who need these medications on a daily basis. And really the only people who should be using them are the physicians on the front lines in the ICU who are using it almost as a treatment of last resort or an experimental treatment to see if anything will work to save patients who are near to near to death from the coronavirus. So, you know, I'm fine with doctors using it in the hospital. I just think it's dangerous to say that we're, that this may work because it leads people uh, in the community to use it. And we already saw an Arizona man die from taking like an industrial s- strength of hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. 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 And uh, on that, s- that same line, cause I, I think we're, we're, we're seeing even the relaxation of some FDA requirements on allowing those that, that to, it to be used as an experimental treatment for it, which I think is great. W- what about the, the, we hear things about a potential vaccine for this and if one was quickly developed, do you think we'll be able to get it out quick enough or will that run into some bureaucratic hurdles? Yeah, I don't know about how quickly we're going to be able to get that vaccine out because usually the vaccines take a year to 18 months to develop. So you could be looking at at least another nine months to another 15 months for us to develop a functional vaccine. And then th- that's the development of it, and then the testing after that, or does that time period that you mentioned include the, the the testing and verification of it? That includes the testing and verification. So perhaps it would take three to six months to develop a prototype vaccine, and then another three to six months to start testing it on um, humans. And then if that works well, then you have another you know three to six months of ramping up the production of the vaccine and getting it out to the population. Okay. So that, that's really total time inclusive of that, that the testing that would be necessary. I would, would hope that maybe that we'll be able to short circuit that testing a little bit. I mean, you can't eliminate it obviously, but, uh, but certainly to allow it to be tested in a more expeditious way would probably be helpful here. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, and I know, I've, and I'm, I'm, 
probably uh, planning a question for Ron, uh, but I know that he wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, herd immunity with regard to that. But I'm going to take in a slightly different direction for probably my last question since we've got about two, two and a half minutes left or so. What about any links that you've read about or seen with regard to diabetes or pre-diabetic conditions? Do you think that that's potentially a link, or is that just ancillary to the fact that it does seem to affect people who are older and who well, would be have, have those conditions as well? Well, that's a great question. I don't know why, but we have noticed that more people who have the following conditions are dying from uh, coronavirus. And those conditions are obesity, high blood pressure, uh, diabetes, and pulmonary disease. I think the pulmonary disease is pretty obvious because folks who are smoking uh, or vaping are more uh, prone to having worse outcomes. Uh, obesity also kind of makes sense because folks who, have, who are more obese, they have uh, sometimes limited airway. Um, a lot of the adiposity can push on their airways and decrease the amount of oxygen that they can get in. And that's why you see things like sleep apnea and folks who are obese. I really don't know why folks who have diabetes are more likely to die from this, but uh, we have seen that in the hospital systems where they've created these criteria. And if you meet these criteria, you're high risk for mortality from COVID-19. And those include the ones I've listed previously. Yes, and the, and the diabetes as well, which, I, like I said, that's that, that's pretty interesting. But again, those things are correlated too, right? The diabetic and pre-diabetic conditions are also correlated to age to a certain extent. Yeah, as we age, it's more likely that we become diabetic, but it also affects uh, folks who are overweight. People who are overweight and obese are more likely to be diabetic, and then minority populations are more likely to be diabetic as well. Well, I, I want to thank you. I know Ron's got one more segment with you, and I look forward to listening to that. Um, but I want to thank you for being on today. It's been really helpful for just me personally to hear someone of your stature talk about this. And so, so thanks for that. Thank you for having me on. It's been a wonderful experience as always. All right. And we want to remind our audience that to get a hold of us, the hashtag on Twitter is hashtag AskTSOE. Rate this podcast.com slash TSOE will allow you to, to rate our show. We, we love to hear those uh, ratings from you as well as comments that you have for us. And lastly, I just want to mention our Patreon site where we do post our shows with no commercial interruption as well as the bonus episodes that we're doing. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. 
Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise well welcome back everybody we're here with dr paul thomas talking coronavirus and dr paul I, the university of pittsburgh has said they have developed a vaccine and i know i'd ask you a little bit about this but i i just want to ask you this they say they've seen results development of antibodies in mice and i just finished a book by the oncologist dr azza azra raza who wrote a book called the first cell and she says at least for cancer having anything to do with mice doesn't really work when it comes to translating that to humans but is, is that not true with vaccines? The fact that it works in mice, is that promising for a vaccine? You know what? I'm, that's a little bit uh, outside of my scope of practice. I don't really know. I can't really comment on the effectiveness of vaccines in mice versus humans. That's just not something I'm, I'm trained to understand. Then when we say you know, it takes 12 to 18 months, seems to be the average of developing these vaccines, is there a way that the FDA could expedite it? I mean, when you look, when you balance the risk of this thing spreading, continue to spread versus what is the risk from a vaccine? Yeah, the risk would be that uh, perhaps you don't have the right particles. So usually in a vaccine, you break down the virus and you have a killed virus and you just have the proteins of the outside uh, viral capsid, and you're injecting that. See the viral proteins and mount an immune response without getting any of the RNA that will replicate in the body and cause the host to develop the virus. And so perhaps if you don't go through the right processes, if you don't take enough time to develop it perfectly, you could be injecting a, a viral capsid, the proteins that don't induce an adequate immune response. So you're basically just wasting a bunch of money for no benefit, or you could be inducing a, an immune response that's too strong and potentially causing some vaccine induced reactions. Um, so that's why the testing process is so important so that you get it just right. You're having a vaccine that's effective, that balances uh, efficacy versus any harms. Right. 
On your website video from March 26th, you talked about, uh, you answered the question, how can I become immune? <laughs> Which I think is probably a frequently asked question you get. And you listed two things. And I want to talk about the first one. If you get infected and recover, then your body produces IgM and then IgG, and then you've got the antibody, I guess. Um, you said that um, to, to create herd immunity, um, you need 50 to 60% uh, of, of people that, that would be immune. Can that immunity happen through plasma transfusions from people who have had it and recovered? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, they're talking about uh, using plasma in the acute setting, although this is unproven, where they take plasma from somebody who has recovered from the coronavirus and in injecting that plasma into somebody else's bloodstream who's actively fighting off the coronavirus and hoping that that plasma will have enough antibodies to fight off the infection. However, after that initial transfusion, or let's say you just gave that transfusion to somebody who has not been affected by coronavirus, it, those antibodies will only last in their system for maybe 24 or 48 or 72 hours. It's not enough to confer long-term immunity because you're just getting somebody else's proteins and not the machinery to produce those proteins. Got it. Wow. So that's kind of a, a, a dead end to go down. Right. Hmm. And then, of course, you talked about vaccination being the second way to become immune, and we know that's a ways off. But what about this thing running its course and achieving herd immunity? And I know herd immunity would be a lot faster with a vaccine, but in, in lieu of a vaccine, can there be some achievement of herd immunity? How long does that process take? Yeah, so basically it would take for 50% of our population to get infected and then recover from the virus. And so obviously that could take, that could be done in a month. Let's say if, if everybody just went outside and went about their normal business and interacted like there's nothing going on, we of course would have many more infections um, and everyone would you know, hopefully recover from this. But the issue is that you would really overrun your hospitals and ERs and ICUs, and then you'd be left in our current situation where we don't have enough beds and ventilators for folks. Or, you know, the herd immunity that we're hoping to achieve is over like a three to four month period, gradually a few people get infected at a time, and then we slowly develop this herd immunity, and then three, four months later, we can all emerge from this shutdown and go about our business as usual. Um, and with that herd immunity in place, that will protect us from uh, the infection from spreading. Right. Unless, of course, it comes back in some type of different strain. Yeah, exactly. You know, I got a question for you. I'm looking at Worldometer and California, Michigan has now surpassed California with more cases. And you know, California, we were taking flights in. We have something like 7,000 or more people coming in a day from China during December and January before, you know, Trump shut down the tra uh, travel. And yet we're not seeing many cases in California. There's 11,000 cases. There's only 246 deaths, each one a tragedy has to be said. But can you 
account for that? Why, why wasn't California hit as bad as New York or New Jersey or even Michigan? Well, I can't really speak on California, but I will say that um, Bridge Magazine here in Detroit did an excellent article about why Detroit has been so hard hit by this. And one of the reasons is that we are an automotive center. You know, we're the motor city. We put the world on wheels. And part of that is that we have part suppliers across the globe. And one of our major part supplier is Wuhan, China. And so we are doing a lot of business with that part of the world where this virus originated. And one of the theories as to why we're being hit so hard is because of this um, trade route and because of people coming back and forth between Wuhan and the Detroit area. And I think that's why we have so many cases coupled with um, some other factors that are local that make Detroit and Detroiters more susceptible to this virus. Right, right. And, that, and, and I know even Silicon Valley, you know, these companies are spending a fortune flying some of their people to China, even towards Wuhan, where some of the factories are located nearby, mm. at least. Like Apple, I know, spends a fortune every year flying people back and forth. I'm just, I can't wrap my head around why California wasn't hit harder than, than we have been. It's just, I don't know. <laughs> I was just thinking, could it be herd immunity? Uh, it, it may be, it may be about how uh, California is wealthier. Um, um, perhaps there is more distance between people. You know, New York city is very densely populated, the most densely populated city in the United States. Um, Detroit has some factors that makes us more susceptible, like um, poverty, lack of running water in houses. So people can't even wash their hands in certain homes in Detroit. Um, lack of access to doctors. Um, Detroit is medically underserved, as you may know. So California, I see as having a lot more resources to deal with this um, and also perhaps being less dense in a place like New York City. Right. Well, it's great that you're there in Michigan helping to fill that gap of <laughs> medical care. Doc, where do you see this ending? How and when do you see this kind of where we hit the peak and start to come down on the other side? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I think that's something that we're all struggling to understand and that's fluid. Um, but I, I think that it's reasonable to expect that we're shut down uh, in April, all of April, and perhaps even through half of March or the entirety of March. Um, and then as more people become infected and recover and can prove their immunity through this to, through testing, we'll have more people re-entering the workforce day by day. And I think that that's why the testing is so important because if you can prove that you're immune to this, then you can go back into the worst workforce and continue to work. Um, after like a 14-day quarantine period is, is surpassed. And so I think we'll gradually return to normal as more and more people can prove that. Dr. Paul, thank you so much for your appearance today for the second time on The Soul of Enterprise. We really appreciate you sharing your expertise and knowledge. And maybe you'll come back with an update as, as we go down the road and hopefully emerge from this. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Ed, what do we have next week? 
Next week, Ron, we are going to have a second visit from Jody Thompson, the founder of the results-only work environment movement, which is right in line with what we need to get be doing. Perfect timing. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. Sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's 1 p.m. Pacific time. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us online at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. <laughs>